Hey guys, welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy, a podcast where I talk to creators and entrepreneurs building the next big things. Excited for my guest, Dan Pashman, episode number 36. If you missed last week's episode, make sure you check it out. He was also on the show then. Before I get started, I'm excited to say that I have a marketing tip sheet and guidebook for anyone who wants to launch a podcast in 2015 and beyond. So if you have an idea for a podcast, if you're curious about podcasting and want to start a show, please email me. would love to get this out to as many people that are interested. Ryan at InfluencerEconomy.com is the email. I wish I had this tip sheet and marketing launch guide when I started my podcast. It will help you with your show creation, helping to build content for your audience, and also developing your community. So again, Ryan at InfluencerEconomy.com is my email. Hit me up on Twitter at Ryan J. Will if you would like it as well. And without further ado, here's Dan Pashman. We're going to jump right into a situation where I asked him about LA barbecue and he gave me his insights into the community of barbecue out here as, as if I was on the Sporkful podcast itself. And then we get into the creation of a show and the background and make sure you check out his book on Amazon as well. Eat more better. And without further ado, Dan Pashman from WNYC's the Sporkful. Yeah. So you, you have this uh, approach to eating. That's pretty funny. And, uh, I think, I guess it's, you know, I love barbecue and I, I, I wanted to run a question by you with barbecue because sure. I have an issue with, uh, I live in LA and there, there's a great place for barbecue called Baby Blue out here, but they do some Carolina, some Texas brisket, some Tennessee barbecue. I went to college at Vanderbilt in the South. I love pulled pork, but these guys mix the barbecue. So you got like every sauce at your table. They don't really give you instructions. And it's almost like they, they took a shortcut to uh, the barbecue formula instead of just tr- sticking with one tradition of the type of barbecue. What? <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what? What do you think about that? Like, I mean, you you have these types of dilemmas on your on yeah, your podcast no, all the time. I, I mean, th- this is a it's a valid question. I I think that you know, look, you wouldn't find a place like that in the barbecue belt. You know, like it, it's it, when you get far away from where a food is created, that, I feel like that's when you're more likely to lose those regional differences. Um, you know, like if you go to what's it called? Uh, was it San Gabriel Valley outside L.A.? Is that like where there's a. Yeah. Yeah. It's like east of L.A. Right. There's a huge population of Chinese people, ton of, tons of great Chinese restaurants. Like you're not gonna find like in, in a place like that where you have a really um, a pure strain of a certain type of food, you're not gonna find like a, a restaurant that has pad thai and sushi and lo mein. Right. Never. Right. Like you wouldn't find that place like in a really authentic Chinese area. And so like you know in 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 the middle of Texas in um you know uh, if you go near near Black's Barbecue or one of those places that's really famous or, like you go to Ruby's you know, in Austin. Right, like you're you're not going to find a place there that's going to have some North Carolina and some Texas and some Kansas City, you know, like like they're they're going to specialize in one thing. And I, so I, I think that it's just sort of like, chances are the barbecue there is not as good as the bar that the place you're describing in LA is not as good as the super authentic stuff. But neat, nor is it in New York or really anywhere else. Like to me, it's one of the. I inter- I was talking to this guy who runs a great barbecue place in Williamsburg in Brooklyn called Brisket Town. And I was like, why is this? Because to me, it seems like barbecue is something that should be able to travel. Yeah, totally. You know, like, like, like I understand why, um, why you can't get great lobster in Iowa, you know, because there's no lobsters anywhere near Iowa. 
But I'm actually, by but, the way, I grew up in Iowa for 15 years. Uh, and Red Lobster was the <laughs> quintessential <laughs> option for eating seafood from the New England area. Right. So there you go. So <laughs> so, so I, I don't – but you would think that like – and you probably have this in L.A. In New York, every couple of years, there's a story of some guy who went down to – went down south and he apprenticed under someone for a year and he bought a 30-year-old smoker and hitched it to the back of his truck and he drove it up to New York. Yeah. And he's using the same smoker and he's learned from the master and – it's just not the same. So I said to the guy from Brisketown, Dan Delaney, I said, why? Why is that? And he was that, and he said, well, basically he said that using a smoker and knowing how to use a smoker is an extraordinarily delicate and complicated process when you get to a very high level. And his analogy was, just because you have Mozart's piano doesn't mean you can play like Mozart. Ah. And I, I think that's uh, what's going on there. Drop the mic. I mean, that's the... Uh yeah, <laughs> that's the answer right there. Yeah, well, I, I love that. I feel like I was just on the sporkful. Yeah, <laughs> this is such a unique spin, but also it's such a a funny way to think about food that you know it's not like on the cooking channels or any you know, top chef. You got to be like professional, serious, focused chef. But you are taking this as an angle. You're a consumer and eater and like more relatable. Well, what I did when so I was talking to someone about this interview, and I said. You wrote a book, and they asked what it was about. I said it was the money ball for food. <laughs> Where, like, you've, like, analyzed food so much, there's all these new metrics that have been completely undervalued. <laughs> and we've been looking at food, like, batting average should be the best statistic. No, it shouldn't. On base percentage, you know? R right, right. You don't need a big budget to have a good meal. You just need to do, like, the tricks, like, have don't have soggy grilled cheeses, and you'll enjoy your food a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. I may, I may have to steal that. You it's all yours. It's, all right. op we're open source over here. Everything's right, up for right. grabs. Great. But I, I, so, you know, getting into the, the idea around the show and not realizing at first what you were doing, but you, you just did it. Like you put one foot in front of the other and, and then you built it over time and it evolved. So what was the transition to the book? And, and actually you won a James Beard award. And was that before the book or after? That was before the book. I was nominated. I didn't win, although oh, you're you know, nominated. being nominated okay. is pretty cool anyway. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I fortunately, I have one of the good things about having been laid off a lot in the world of radio is that I've also been hired a lot. And I've, that means that I've created and launched a lot of shows. So creating and launching my own show, you know, I kind of, I, I kind of um, had, you know, like I, I, I kind of knew the drill. And it's something I had experience with. And so I've always been a big believer in the idea that, you know, you can only plan so much before you start doing it. And you just have to start doing it. And, and I did plan, like, I did, I did two pilot episodes of the Sporkful podcast and shared it with, like, 10 friends in the radio world and got their feedback. And then I was like, all right, let's just start doing it. And we'll we'll learn along the way. Um, and, you know, I... I um, as I've gotten older and been doing it for more, I, I've I've started I've learned to kind of trust my gut more. I think I probably used it used to be a more self conscious process, and now the show is more just like if something if I'm interested in something and it gets me excited, then I'll do a show about it. Um, and you know it's it's been exciting, especially going to WNYC and like they just it's it's broad in the scope like. Like up until a year ago, the show was 
it was really fun and I and I loved doing it, but I felt like like I'm really proud of those first few years of episodes and I wouldn't change them. But I also feel like if I kept doing it that way, like it would have run out of steam and I would have gotten tired of it and listeners would have gotten tired of it. So did you say so, acquired by them? Is that how you would describe it? No, it's more like a, uh, a co-production. Like we, we sort of partnered together um, uh, to, to do this workflow together. So um, like I, I, I am, you know, part of WNYC essentially and, um, and all that. Um, but it's sort of like the Sporkful is still kind of my creation. So, and what, um, what, with the book, did it help to have the podcast as a platform? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, and vice versa. You know, when I went to WNYC, it helped to have that I had a book coming out. You know, and 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 the, the book, as, as we had hoped, the book drove a lot of new people to the podcast, and the the um, podcast, you know, drove people to the book, and that's you know that's the whole idea nowadays. I always joke that, you know, the. The podcast people say, well, you can't make any money in podcasts, but maybe you'll get a book deal. Yeah. Then you get a book deal, and the book people are like, ah, no money in publishing, but if your book does well, you know, if your book does well, you'll get to sell a TV show. And the TV people are like, oh, TV is, you know, TV is not, not such good money anymore, but if you get a TV show, then you can sell oven mitts. That's yeah. where the money is. It's in yes. the oven mitts. Aprons. And the, of course, the oven mitt people are like, no more money in oven mitts, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So the, I guess the idea is if you do all of it, then it equals something. But, um, um, you know, yeah, well, so... I, I also yeah, think, like, it, with publishing, you know, they all, like, now I'm, I've written book proposals, and I'm, I'm most likely going to self-publish at this point, at least at first, and do these smaller books. But it's like you need a platform if you want a publisher. You know, it's like you just right. can't get a book deal anymore. And yeah, no, like, th- th- they Cheryl, expect Cheryl, you... You're Sheryl yeah. Sandberg or you're someone like George Bush, yeah, but... For the average Joe, it's so hard. That's right. No, they, they you need to have a platform, and they expect you to do the lion's share of the promotion for it as well. Like you know, um, how do you promote the book through the podcast? Outside, because you did um, live. I thought your live events are cool, like the Amy Sedaris. Yeah, the event. live events were a blast. I mean, I I just sort of talked about it. I, I kind of tried a little bit of everything. Um, it was a, you know, it's a real struggle because. On one hand, you know, I don't want to be too self-promotional and heavy-handed with it. On the other hand, it's like I've been working on this book for three years, and I have a lot riding on it, and I care very much about it, and I'm very proud of it, and I truly believe that the people who listen to my podcast would really like this book if they would buy it and read it. So it's hard to resist the temptation to just grab people by the shirt collar and be like, buy this book. You're going to like it. I promise. You know, like I, I made this just for you and it really means a lot to me. Please just buy it already. (laughs) Um, cause you know, apparently people don't like when you physically accost them. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. I don't like, but, um, (laughs) but I I understand your uh, frustrations that you would want to shake someone. Right. So, so you kind of got to play it cool a little bit or you come off like a self-promotional jerk. But the flip side is that if you play it too cool, nobody knows you're selling a book. Yeah. Um, you know, it was funny, like uh, around Thanksgiving, I was noticing that, you know, right as soon as the Christmas shopping season was starting up and, you know, I've always been one of those people, like most people who were like, oh God, Christmas marketing and advertising, it seems to start earlier every year. And it's the worst, you know, come on. It's, 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 it's uh, such an onslaught. And this was the first holiday season that I actually had something to sell. Yeah. 
So come around, you know, middle of November, I was like, let's get this holiday season going. Come on, everybody. It's Christmas time. Fire it up. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't hear any carols in the mall yet. <laughs> right. Like, I'll start singing. <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, I, there were, were there's a podcast or two where I basically just took a minute or two and was like, I wrote a book. Let me tell you a little about, a bit about it. I would love it if you'd buy it. Here's how to buy it. Other times I dropped in very brief mentions like, oh, this is something that's in my book, blah, blah, blah. Um, or I would mention it briefly in the end credits of the show. Yeah. You know, I tried a little bit of everything. Um, and it did and it work? I mean, is it, how did it, how's it performing? It's doing well. Um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, so I would always want it to, want everything to do better than it does. But um, it certainly did well. Um, and the idea is, you know, the reason why I think Simon and Schuster was excited to publish the book was really not so much for like, what's it going to do in the first month or two, but really like I have this podcast at WNYC, you know, when a publisher buys a book, they're often looking long-term. And the idea is that like, or I'm hopeful that, that I'll sell more of the books around Mother's Day and Father's Day and next holiday season, you know, like it's not going anywhere. The book was written to be really like a definitive text uh, a book that will never go out of style that you can give as a gift for years to come and read uh, on your couch or your toilet for years to come and get a kick out of. So um, I think the idea is that it's more like it's like we had a great initial push and now it's just a matter of like they want to see consistency. And so what do you think like your biggest revenue stream will be in three years? Because you're oh, on geez. all these different platforms and creating content and you know, now you're published, you have a show that's, you know, partnered with like one of the biggest podcast independent broadcasters out there. I mean, what's the, what's the, like, are you, would you consult with companies that, I mean, you have such a specialized niche. It's not like you're a chef that's going to open up a restaurant or maybe you will. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm not a chef. I mean, I guess maybe I'd open up a restaurant, uh, in the right situation. That could be fun down the road sometime. But, um, I I mean yes I would consult and I have um but but I mean right now you know I honestly don't know I don't know what it'll be in 3 years um I mean I I think it's reasonable to expect that it will be um partly the podcast and hopefully a second book yeah um but you know you never know 3 years is a long time you know like uh you know I I host these web series for cooking channel and there's always these like TV opportunities that are kind of bubbling out there, or not bubbling, more like simmering. Um, so you know, if something big happens in the world of TV that could you know could change things a lot. Um, but I'm not I'm not counting on that. You know, that's the TV thing is more like a this would be fun if it happened, but like I'd be very happy to make my podcast that's sort of like my real passion project and write another book and. Maybe do some more live events um, and do some speaking. I love doing speaking. I love you know being in front of a crowd, interacting with people, meeting sporkful listeners around the country is really exciting um, for me. So um, I feel like that is sort of more like a more realistic three-year plan. What are some of the speaking opportunities you get? Um, like you, do, you know, like, it, it's you like the, you, I know you do the live shows. Like, how do you actually? Like the live shows, do you just program them yourself? Is it like Amy Sedaris? Like, you pulled off a live event with her. Like, how does that go down? Yeah, so that was that was at the WNYC as a performance space um, called the Green Performance Space. It's a beautiful uh, little theater, and um, so I knew I wanted to do something there 
around my book release, there'd be a live taping of the Sporkful, um, and I wanted to make sure I sold the building out and made it you know, a big event. And I've always loved Amy Sedaris. I've been a huge fan of her work for years and years. Um, so she was like my first choice from from the get go to get her to come to the event. Did she write a book about manners? Yeah, she wrote a book about hospitality and entertaining yeah. and stuff. So, um, the way it happened was, I uh, I know Robert Krulwich from Radio Lab because I've worked in public radio and worked with him. We're friendly. Radio Labs at WNYC. So the first thing I did when I had the date for the live event was I went to Krulwich and I said, hey, Robert, will you be my guest for my live event? He said, of course. So he's booked. And then um, and then I booked Dominique Ansel, the guy who created the Cronut, because his book was coming out around the same time as mine. We had the same publisher. So that was like, you know, so those two were like relatively easy because um, I had an in with both pers- both of those two people. And and that those are two good names and uh, different from each other. So then, once you have those two guests and you have a venue like a, like WNYC Performance Space, you know that's not somebody's basement. It's a a, a beautiful place. Then you go to Amy Sedaris and you say, "We've got Robert Krulwich from Radio Lab. We have Dominique Ansel who created the Cronut. We've got the Green Space. We've got Dan's book release." you know, happening and we have all these things are already lined up. And the one thing that we want to be like, we want you to be the star. We want you to be the, we want your name at the top of the billboard with all these other things. And you're our first choice and we love you. And will you please show up for an hour? Mm -hmm. And she said, yes. So I was your theory that you talked about here. There's two types of guests. There's the people that like get all worked up and they host Two types. Of, this is in the book. Yeah, the, the two, there are two types of hosts. Yeah, hosts. Uh, right. uh, missionaries and martyrs. A martyr is a host who basically like sacrifices their own enjoyment in order to make sure everyone else is happy. Um, and and they 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 are happy in their own way. They derive their happiness from knowing that everyone else is happy, even if they never sit down, even if they never get a bite to eat. Um, yep. The missionary is a person who leads by example. So a person who really participates in their own party. They look after their guests, but they're also, they're, you know, to me, like, like the hallmark of a missionary host is that you answer the door with a drink in your hand. Uh-huh. You know, like, like you've already started drinking before the first guest arrived. Like, you're leading by example. You're showing everyone, I'm here to have a good time. Like, at my own wedding, like, I made a point of being the first person to take off my jacket and loosen my tie. Yep. You know, and that gave every other person there permission. You know, it gave every guy there permission to take their jacket off. It gave every woman permission to throw her heels under the table and, and come dancing in their bare feet or, you know, stockings or whatever. And so, um, you know, when you can lead by example um, and set a certain tone for your party, then you're being a missionary. That's great. And Amy said she was both, right? Yeah, and I, truth be told, I, I mean, I'm a little bit of both. I think anyone who's sort of like a high-strung host is always going to be a little bit preoccupied with managing the event and, and tending to people. And it's going to be hard to just get completely lost in conversation as if you are another guest. Exactly. I, I totally hear your – I like your discrepancies there. So the the book in general, though, like the I like the money ball angle because like you're – the way creatively you think about stuff is – is so non-traditional when it comes to eating. And uh, like I like how you have like used words like finding nirvana and uh, every meal is an opportunity for greatness. <laughs> it, 
is such a funny way to think about stuff. Um, but like in general, I wanted to to wrap this up and you know this has been awesome. I think people are gonna get a lot from this, just from a creative perspective, as as well as people understanding like the industry of podcasting. Um, would love to just get like one piece of advice for uh, up and coming creators beyond just you know starting and going after it. Like something that you did. Like is there a moment where you transition where you're like, okay, this is working, and I did X because I can tell now it's paying off. I'll give you a couple quick pieces of advice. I would say, um, as much as we've joked here in our conversation about the fact that I'm in my basement in my pajamas right now, I do think it's really important, as you sort of said, Ryan, to like really project um, an air of professionalism. Like when I was starting this porkful, I put a lot of thought into what I would call it, what the tagline would be, but also having a nice website, getting a cool looking logo, getting nice business cards, you know, just all those little details, especially because in today's day and age, anyone can start a podcast. Anyone can publish a book, self-publish, you know, anyone can do any of these things. So, so you need to, to be find a way to show people that you're serious, and that you're committed and that you're not just, you know, someone else who's kind of jerking around. And so any – and the way you present yourself and, and um, I think is really important. I think the other – Presentation. The, right. Just presentation of every little element, you know, details of just how your business, your project comes across to people. Like, you know, just put yourself in the shoes of someone that you're trying to pitch to or get excited about your thing. You know, like like – and, and imagine, like, I, I know that if a friend of mine is like, oh, I started this thing, like, if I look at their website and the website looks like crap, I'm going to immediately assume that they're not taking it seriously. Right. You know, like, if it looks like some website that was designed in, you know, 2001. It's if it's a GeoCities site. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, if the, uh, if the email address for the business is mybusiness at AOL.com, <laughs> right. you know, like, I'm going to think, like, I, this isn't. You know, you're not you're not gonna get you're not gonna impress me. I judge so, you by the email you use. That's right. That's right. So, so that stuff I think is important. And then I I would also say, you know, as I sort of said before, but I'll say it again. You know, like it, it you need to be prepared for the fact that it's gonna take a really long time. And um, anyone who who t- tells you that there is some sort of magic recipe for the exact time of day to tweet or the exact way to make a viral video, or the exact way to do anything that's going to get you some huge following online is, is, is selling you a bill of goods. And really what, it, what you need is to have you know, persistence more than anything. I would also really encourage people to sit down and write a description of the thing. Whatever the thing you're making, sit down and force yourself to write it in words, and as few words as possible, like three sentences. Yeah. Like write what your thing is in three sentences. Yeah. Um and and um like like you know when you pitch stories on this for this American life they have a rule like you need to be able to explain it in one sentence. Mm-hmm. You know like like you, you know and, and that's not because people have short attention spans it's because like you need to you need to strip away all the the BS and like understand what your thing is at its essence. You know, right. you need to understand it at its essence, and then you can build from there. But until you know what its essence is, and it's a really important intellectual exercise to force yourself to 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 figure out exact exactly and as specific as possible, what is this thing? What is it, and why is it special? 
Totally. You know, um, I think that that's also just really important. And the last thing, you know, is like I, t- I talked about how I, you know I've launched a number of shows. You know, when you're when you're making a show every week or two or whatever it is, when I was working on daily radio shows, like whatever you're when you're doing a startup and you're, you know, I've worked in all kinds of startups, and you're always kind of understaffed and you're always kind of scrambling, and it's very easy to fall into the a pattern where you're just um, frantically trying to crank the thing out. Like you're just trying to keep your head above water, whatever the thing. You're just trying to make widgets. Um, and I think it's really important that periodically that you stop and take a step back and evaluate what you're doing and not be afraid to change it. Like you just can't be afraid to throw something out, you know, uh, when it's not working and try something different. What do you, what do you uh, think the legacy like of This American Life is and like the Pantheon? Like is Ira Glass on your like Mount Rushmore for uh, for podcasting, he he is absolutely. Although, you know, because and I mean, to me, this American Life is still the gold standard, and I have, you know, the highest respect for what they do. But in some ways, you know, <laughs> through no fault of their own, they've had a, a a a damaging effect in the world of public public radio because everyone tries to imitate them. Yeah, You know, everyone is trying to rip off This American Life. Everyone wants to sound like Ira Glass. And it's funny because when you hear Ira interviewed, he will talk about how when he first started, all the people on the radio were very like, I am the voice of God newsman and I sound very polished and official and I have this beautiful baritone and I speak uh, in very fluid, wonderful sentences and don't ever stutter and don't ever, you know, et cetera. And so uh, he, he felt like people on the radio didn't talk like normal people. And so he did, he went in the opposite direction of what was common at the time. And so I've actually tried to do the same thing, which is to go in a very different direction from This American Life. Like I'm one of the few people in public radio who comes from the world of talk radio. And I started in talk radio working with Mark Marin. Um, which is very unscripted, very much about be, being live in the moment, conversations, um, not about not about stitching together the perfect story necessarily. It's not so much about storytelling as it is about capturing authentic moments. Yeah. And so, I've kind of intentionally always tried to maintain uh, a talk radio sensibility in the Sporkful because of this American life and its many imitators and because I feel like I'll never be able to do that as well as those guys do it. So rather than try to imitate it, I've tried to uh, be different. Now, partly that's because I think that plays more to my strengths, but it's partly just because I want what I'm doing to stand out. Did you think Did you think Marin was, would do what he's doing now? Could you tell that there was something about him or has he just evolved and upped his game so much? Well, I mean, look, the the first year that he was hosting W or the first year that he was hosting the radio show on Air America when I was working with him, I mean, I think he'd be the first to tell you that when he first started, you know, he didn't really have the hang of it. And you know, we talked earlier about people dismissing radio, you know, uh there were a lot of people at Air America who didn't come from the world of radio and and came there thinking, "Well, I know how to be entertaining. I can host a radio show and I'll be great." Um and I think one thing I always really respected about Mark Marin was that he he came there and he understood that he needed to, to get better and he worked really hard at that um, and he did get better a lot better and I, I actually think that his 
his talent is so uh, unique that, and he has such a real ability to connect with people and to read people that once he got the hang of it, I, I did start to feel, I did, like by the time that he had been doing it for two, I'd been working with him for two years, I, I felt like, I felt like he was a better radio host than than comic, actually. And that's not meant in any way as a knock on his comedy, which I think is great. But like, um, I, I think that the, just the format of long form conversation suits his talents um, better than being up on stage in a comedy club for 15 or 20 minutes. But having like the comedy background helps him. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he's still a great comic. But he has perspective um, in a lot of ways with fellow comics because he's been there. It's like, you know, almost like therapy where it's like empathy. Like, I've been there. I know how hard it is. And Right, you know. but the thing about being a comic is, is, is that, you know, unless you're Louis C.K., most of the time when you're performing, you're not performing for an hour, an hour and a half. Right. You're performing for 15 minutes. And right. Marin is not the kind of guy who just comes out there and just, you know, machine guns you with punchlines. His approach is more one about developing a relationship with an audience. Um, and he has an extraordinary ability to develop relationships with people very quickly and to read them and to read a crowd. But, he, you know, 15 minutes wasn't long enough. And I feel like it's so. I think some of his, many of his have his his long form comedy specials or masterpieces. But just like week in week out as a touring comic, you know, I I don't know that that suited his talents the same way that like having this long form medium to express himself, you know, has just tapped into his abilities, his talents that go beyond um, being funny, which is largely like connecting with people and reading people, and and he's also just become a really good interviewer. Um, which is something he honed, you know, in the, his days working at, at Air America, but he's continued to hone that. So you think it's because that, he can read people, like, in the moment? And- yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. He, he he knows how to read people, and he's, I mean, his mind works extremely quickly. He um, he can, he not only can read people very quickly, but he can react, and he can adjust his tone and his approach and his style um, accordingly, like, in, in a ma- matter of split seconds, uh, in order to find the way to connect with the person, or if he's angry with someone, to get a rise out of them, like he he whatever he wants in that moment, you know he he knows exactly the button to press to get it. What do you think as far as his his uh, his shows that is like why does everyone open up and why is he the guy? Is he, does he have a level of trust that he's he gets you into conversations that it feels safe because people like Todd, you know Todd Glass like opened up you know in came out of the closet for the first time ever on his show. Like, what's, what do you think is, 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 uh, is he, like, very sensitive when he talks to people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I think that he is, he reads people very well. Um, he is thoughtful. He gives people time to talk and doesn't make them feel rushed. Um, he talks very openly about himself, and I think anytime as an interviewer when you share something about yourself uh, that's personal, it makes the person you're talking to feel comfortable sharing something about themselves. Um, and then I think he has the benefit of it, you know, over time, once you're, sh- once you do a show that develops a, a, a certain reputation for being a safe place to come and open up and a place where people come to talk about things they don't talk about with other people, I think it, I'm sure there are some times that it makes it harder because people have their guard up, but I think most people now when they come on that show, they know that that's, it's that kind of show. And so they go on the show and they, 
they kind of walk in the door ready to get something off their chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So, I love I, I love watching his career arc. I'm sure you do too because you worked with him and you know you've seen him over time. You're friends with him, and uh, he, you know you've gone gone to his show. He's gone on yours. Um, but yeah, he's uh, masterful at what he's whatever he's doing. He's doing a great job, and I love his personality. I feel like he was angry guy for a while and was like railing against the system but now he's so big it's hard i mean i wonder how hard it is (laughs) do you think it is to find stuff for him to be mad about you know like there's he's so successful right right well i mean uh um uh langhorn slim who's a musician who i like uh who actually he was on wtf first time i ever heard of him was he came on the show and marin and i were working together at air america he has this great lyric he says um I've had it better than some, and I know that I shouldn't complain. Still, my grandfather told me once that all pain hurts the same. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone has bad days. And, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, uh, I know Mark has his, like all of us. Well, dude, this, this has been great. This is, uh, this is like killing. There's a, a theory that one of my guests told me about. It's uh, called the milkshake theory. And it's by this guy, Clay Christensen. And it's uh, about jobs to be done. So it's everything you do in life. It needs to do more than one job for you. And so my podcast, I always think like, what jobs can I do for people? Make them funny, make them insightful, make them inspiring, make them um, people that aspire to be creators to, to learn. So this tackled a lot of, lot of stuff. So thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And also don't forget that milkshakes are delicious. Milkshakes are equally delicious. And <laughs> and my wife's a cherry picker with trail mix and I can't stand it. Oh yeah, well, there's a whole Socratic dialogue in the book about snack mix and people who take specific ingredients. So um well, you know, Socrates stands up for your wife in my book. I hate to break it to you, Ryan. So angry. She takes the chocolate out and I it, <laughs> it pains me every time. Cool man. Thanks so All right. much. Thank you, Ryan. Take it easy. That was an awesome episode with Dan. So excited to have him on the show. He's one of my favorite guests so far. Check out Eat More Better, the book on Amazon. Subscribe to the Top Rated Food Podcast, which is the Sporkful, an amazing show that you should definitely not miss. He's a fantastic storyteller. One of the best edited podcasts I've ever heard out there. He does a great job with intros and outros, music, uh, interludes, interviews, guests, etc. So a big fan of his. Also want to thank everyone for tuning in and checking out this podcast and would love to give you the marketing tip sheet at ryan at influencereconomy.com is my email. I've been getting a lot of great feedback from the show, even getting negative feedback from the show. I love hearing from people regardless. Anything to make the show better, to give value to you all, the listener, in any way you can help me to make this a better product. I'm always uh, wanting to, to learn and, and inspired by the community. People have really been reaching out to me for the tip sheet as well as been appearing on other podcasts, which is always fun. And uh, wanted to throw some things out into the universe because I feel like sometimes when you talk, things actually become true. I'm hoping to get a few guests and have the opportunity to interview a few folks that are on my bucket list. So I wanted to put out in the universe a few of them. One is Ira Glass, the founder of This American Life. The reason I want to have him on is because he's created a legacy of podcasting where shows like Startup, which is number one in business consistently, to Serial which is number one podcast really of all time, have spawned. And Ira Glass, Ira Glass was always concerned with his legacy and creating a great product. And I think he is one of the Mount Rushmore people in the podcasting community. 
Also would love to put out there that I, I'd like Mark Maron on the podcast. I've interviewed him. Actually, I'd never interviewed him, but I emailed him and never heard back. So I think I'm going to email him and say, hey, I'm writing a book. You're in it. Can I interview you just as the subject line and see how that goes? Because I think he's created an amazing community around his show and inspired a generation of people to make podcasts. Uh, one of my favorite guys out there. Also, Bill Simmons from the BS Report. I've had Jonah Carey on the show, who was an amazing guest. Ty Hill and Brand, who solid verbal, was part of the Grantland Network. And Jonah and Ty are such givers to begin with. I think that Bill must be an awesome guest. So uh, he's someone as well that's on the Mount Rushmore. So want to put that out there. And Felicia Day, my fourth person on the bucket list for for now is she's creator of the Guild. She's a big gamer and is so well respected. In a world that's you know dominated by male gamers, she is this beacon of a person who is positive and you know promotes her community, owns her content, and has created some award-winning shows. Geek and Sundry is her YouTube channel. She works with Will Wheaton and has really embraced the community around gaming. And I have a lot of respect for her. So Ira Glass, Mark Marin, Bill Simmons, and Felicia Day are the folks that I would love to get on in the near term. So if you can help me meet them, I'd love to uh, love to find out how to channel that connection so ryan at influencereconomy.com and find us on twitter at ryan j will and influencereconomy.com is the website if you're on itunes please subscribe let me know how i can help your podcast send me an email without further ado i'm going to be heading over to duke zebert's for some chicken in the pot (laughs) 